Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. And this week, we have Stephen Mitchell. Stephen Mitchell is a prolific author. He is a dedicated practitioner of Zen Buddhism, and he allows that to inform his writings. He has written a lot of books, poetry. He's done many translations. Um, uh, some of the ones that I've read have been um, specifically of um, ancient wisdom texts, the Bhagavad Gita, the, um, uh, the Tao Te Ching, the i'm trying to think off the top of my head my brain's gone a bit blank um what else have we got we've got um the epic of gilgamesh loads of fascinating works he's also um done um great work into the historical jesus and and writing um through a lens of zen buddhism uh, and exploring the gospel through that uh, he's got a great book the gospel according to jesus that, that does that he has so much stuff i think i went on his website and i kind of started counting up his books and i think it was about 45 books that he's either written or co-authored or edited um alongside people he's also married to kate uh, to byron katie who is a incredible um, a woman just amazing what she's doing in helping people do work on themselves inner work um, uh, profound stuff um, and so he is just an amazing guy I'm really excited to dive into talk with Stephen about a lot of these different topics and um, before we start Obviously, everything I do is always free. It always will be free. There's never any need for anyone to um, give anything. But for those that appreciate what I'm doing and would like to support it, um, we do have a Patreon. There's patreon.com slash phildrysdale and phildrysdale.com slash partner, whichever one works for you. Um, as a thank you, you get access to a private discussion group. We have all kinds of fascinating discussions around faith and um, deconstruction and different things like that. Um, and we have a monthly Zoom call as well together and, and have great conversations on that. Um, and so if you'd like to support what I'm doing, it does make a huge difference. I do this full time. I have no other form of income um, and, and it does take an extremely huge amount of time. I'm doing this usually 50, 60 hours a week. And so it means a great deal to me for those of you that can support. And for those of you that can't, there is never any need. Um, we've all been burned enough by different um, institutions, religions, leaders, you know, demanding our money and taking our money. So I will never be that person, I promise. I'm always here um, and everything I do will always be free. All right, that's enough of rambling. That's enough of me pitching my uh, my Patreon. Let's dive into the conversation with Stephen Mitchell. Hello. Hello. Hi, Stephen. How are Phil. you? You hear me Good. okay? Yeah. You're up late. I am up late. Yeah, that's that's the way when you work with people in America and you live in the UK. <laughs> it is the 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 way of my life is often up to three a.m. sometimes, uh, and uh, oh, I, get, I hope I get to natural, sleep in. So <laughs> I hope you're a natural night owl. I used, you know, growing up as a teenager, I was up all night and early twenties up all night. And then I, I switched and I became a real morning person. And the last few years I've kind of shifted back. Um, I moved, I lived in America for a while. And when I moved back to the UK, um, most of my audience, most of the people I worked with, about 60, 70% um, are in America. The, the people I work with are generally people that are coming out of quite toxic kind of religious kind of backgrounds. Oh, and so really? they're oh, that's interesting. trying to discover new opportunities. Most of them don't want to lose their spirituality. They, they, they yeah. um, most probably from very Christian backgrounds, um, either quite evangelical, charismatic, maybe some kind of more what would be deemed kind of cultish. Um, but most of them go, we still love the idea of this spirit that we've been kind of trying to engage with. We love the Bible. Maybe we love Jesus. 
but there's a lot of stuff in there we're not liking. <laughs> we don't maybe like our colonization, racism, you know, maybe some homophobia, transphobia, but we're also not sure about this angry God who loves us, but also wants to burn people forever. And, you know, lots of different things. So that they're wrestling with all these different things. Um, and, and, and it's actually why when your um, publicist sent me a message, I was like, this is the perfect book. Because for me, I, I love so much of um, the, your translations, um, different people that are trying to make Eastern um, religion and Eastern concepts more accessible to Western people. Because um, there is a divide there. There's a, there's a complication of crossing that bridge, but even more so for a lot of people that have grown up Christian because they've been told that's evil and demonic or whatever it oh, might be, you know? Um, so it's a beautiful pay potential kind of transition opportunity for people to engage. I, I can't tell you how many uh, hundreds of letters I got when my book, The Gospel According to Jesus, came out from people right. who were struggling in, in just that way. Mm. And uh, so there it is. Well, I need to check that out because I haven't come across that one. And so um, I, I need to oh. have a look well, at it because it sounds like it, it might be really helpful. You might find it really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Stephen, before we kind of kick off, we probably are recording anyway, but <laughs> I'm very, very relaxed. But um, how much time do you have? Because I want to make sure that we kind of don't oh, as much go as beyond any constraints. Okay, well, we'll just see how the conversation goes and feels. Yeah. But, um, I don't want to yeah. you know, eat up your whole day. I'm, comf- if, yeah. I'm comfortable with two hours and uh, uh, it shouldn't go up. Sure. We'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how we go. I, I'm a chatter, yeah. so yeah, I, 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 I have no to keep people talking but um I'll, I'll try and get you get you done by two so you've still got a, a an evening <laughs> good um awesome well could, could you tell me a bit about your background because i i've read some of your translations and i'm aware that you do a lot of work with um kind of translating different ancient myths um spiritual writings things like that did you grow up um kind of in a spiritual home what, what's your kind of background no, personally no not at all uh, hmm. a very um liberal reformed jewish household oh wow okay um yes uh, my father was a doctor he wasn't at all religious um Mm. we had the usual um superficial uh jewish cultural upbringing but i i didn't get um interested in um what i finally came to be doing the first the first um step that I took in that direction was when um, my girlfriend broke up with me when I was 22 years old, my first girlfriend. And um, I found myself being magnetically attracted to the book of Job because in all of the Western tradition, I knew nothing about uh, uh, Taoism or Buddhism or anything else besides Judaism and Christianity at that point. Mm. The book of Job seemed to be the most profound place in Western culture that dealt with the problem of human suffering. And I, mm. I read it over and over in the King James Version at, because it seemed to me that the end, at the end of the book of Job, from the section that's usually called the voice from the whirlwind, there was a most profound experience that the poet who wrote that had had. And it mm. was... Uh, a truly hair-raising answer. And I felt that if I could somehow understand what that poet had seen, that I would be able to deal with the pain in my own heart. Wow. So it led wow. me on a, on a, uh, a really uh, intense path uh, to uh, 
that led to learning Hebrew. My own Hebrew was very uh, minimal bar mitzvah, the mm. usual, um, practically nothing. And it had all dissipated by the time I was 22. So I, <laughs> I learned Hebrew um, and learning Hebrew by, by reading the book of Job is like learning English by reading Finnegan's Wake because the, uh, the Hebrew of Job is very uh, strange, let's say. It's, it's, uh, right. it's bizarre. So, uh, so I, learned it, I learned Hebrew in order to get um, more, deeper into what I had intuited. Yeah. And it took me um, it took me a year, uh, and then I realized I would have to learn textual scholarship because the book is in a, a good deal of disrepair. And then I realized I'd have to learn a bit of um, ancient Semitic comparative philology. One thing led to another. It was you really went deep here. This was one hell of a breakup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I later when I met my girlfriend eighteen years later for the first time, oh, wow. uh, I told her what I had gone through, and she was appalled. But I, I told her that really it was my opening into everything valuable in my life. So she had really been what the Buddhists call a bodhisattva to me. Um, yeah. In other words, an, an angel of grace, because that um, suffering had opened up into uh, everything that was that later um, was was an experience of grace for me. So, yeah. so at any rate. Um, just to make to to conclude this part of the story very briefly, um, I kept working at it and working at it, and um, I, I, in order to get closer to it, I thought it would be a good idea to translate it. Now, hmm. the Book of Job is written in Hebrew verse, and it had never been translated into verse in a Western language. So I thought I would try to. Uh, recreate this incredibly powerful energy of the original into something that reproduced the energy in in English, a three-beat line in English. So, right. so that kept me busy for a few years. But then I woke up one morning um, about six years into the process, and I realized that I wasn't going to get the understanding from words on a page, no matter how profound or magnificent and it occurred to it just seemed to me i had i had a very strong um realization that if i was going to get that understanding standing at all i would have to meet it in the flesh so i was uh, I, I was about to buy a ticket to india i started to learn hindi i thought um i would go to india and try to find an enlightened master and before mm. i could get there a friend of mine said, why don't you um, go to Providence, Rhode Island? There's a Zen master there. I think you should meet him. And uh, I, I did go. I looked into his eyes. It was an incredible experience. They were, they were shining with, um, with a joy that I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. And I stayed with him and practiced very uh, rigorously with him for many years. And then I had my wow. experience when I found myself at the center of Job's whirlwind and everything became clear, um, the, the, the cause of human suffering and the way out. And then the rest of my Zen practice for several decades was a question of refining that realization and um, working through whatever um, personal um, unclarities and, and uh, stuck points I could find. And, and so that's... Uh, that's what yeah. my girlfriend's breakup led to. 
That's the brief wow. version. What a grace. You know, it's, yeah, it's amazing yeah. to me. I, I get the privilege of talking to so many people and about their journeys and their, um, and, and so many aren't in as uh, content a place as you seem to be. They're still in the middle of figuring it out and feel um, quite in the maybe uh, pre-whirlwinds or maybe mid-whirlwinds, I don't know. Um, but uh, it, it feels that very few people have these um these journeys without some good suffering to begin with, you know, even in the, the book that you just bring out, you know, there's this book about Joseph and his, his path and way of learning forgiveness. And, you know, it all starts with him suffering. right? Yeah. I, um, and you know, that one thing I love about the original story, you know, this, the, the book, my book, uh, the way of forgiveness is a, mm. is an amplification uh, and an expansion and an imaginative expansion of the, of the Joseph story from Genesis. But, um, the original story has the all the all the elements that I've expanded on, and so the element that I that I found in it that seemed to me the key to the whole story was his experience in the pit when his brothers. I don't know if your viewers or listeners are. Um, all that most will be probably with, fairly familiar any of them are yeah and if in case in case they've forgotten um uh joseph uh just to to sketch out the story a little bit mm. uh, joseph uh grows up as a um a very beautiful and very intelligent young man and the apple of his father jacob's eye and he's also a, a spoiled brat and um and uh is arrogant and and uh entitled, you name it, and his brothers um, quite rightly come to hate his guts. And so eventually they, uh, after his father buys him the coat of many colors and he parades it around, he makes himself even more impossible and they conspire to kill him. And then they decide not to kill him, but to throw him in, in a pit and eventually sell him into slavery. So it seemed to me that 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 whatever experience he must have had in in the pit um, was the experience that allowed him to come out into a uh, a state of realization, which allowed him to have the amazing success that he had in England in Egypt, mm -hmm. and uh, to reach the the kind of uh, spiritual maturity that resulted in his total forgiveness of his brother for their mm. murderous hatred. So, so that's what I've uh, expanded on in the beginning of the book and opened it up for readers to, to show them what kind of process it is to mm. go through suffering and, and experience it eventually as uh, the key to understanding and hence to humility and hence to grace and hence to uh, a, a state of great happiness. So that's that's yeah. the uh, the fulcrum of the book, you could say. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, it's huge. so suffering, yeah, suffering is uh, in 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 um, almost all the stories of the great spiritual masters is mm. the beginning. There are very few uh, that are the exceptions. Like um, one of my favorite 20th century spiritual masters is a, a Hindu sage named Ramana Maharshi. And uh, he didn't have to go through that. He, uh, uh, for those of your viewers who aren't familiar, he, when he was 16 years old, a schoolboy, he had a sudden fear of death and he lay down on the floor and experienced what would death be. He, he experienced his body as a corpse and he, uh, he connected with 
you yeah. in 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 your terms or in our terms god and ever after that he was in a state of absolute bliss and his understanding his realization at the age of 16 was exactly the same as it was at the age of 76 uh, it wow. was all there all the wisdom of the ages was there in the heart and mind of that 16 year old schoolboy but that's mm -hmm. a, a a great exception you almost never hear of stories like that suffering is almost always a necessary precondition yeah and man i i just actually read that story for the first time just two days ago i think it was maybe three days ago so that's really funny um because i'd heard of him but hadn't uh, really ever looked into it i was like oh wow i think it's it beautiful through maybe soul. i think it was through um Marabai Bush, maybe Ramdas, one of the two. Um, it could well be, yeah. But yeah, um, it, that fascinates me. It actually sparks something in my head, and I'd love. I, it's probably it's not really to do with your book, but let's. I'm just like I've got a, I've got an amazing sage wise person here. I'd love for your input because something that um, a lot of my viewers go through is obviously brought up in generally speaking very intense Christian backgrounds, where generally speaking there's a god in the background with a big stick and. If you screw up, you're going to the bad place, and it's a long, long time. It's eternity. It's hot. It's not fun, and it doesn't stop. Um, it's the, and it's the bad father image. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really scary. It's it's a father that's not very in line with his son, who apparently are the same person, <laughs> a schizophrenic person. Um, but what's interesting about that is I, I I work with people that you know. Some people say to me, Phil, I don't. I've not believed in that God, in, in that concept of God, and I've not. I don't even believe in hell. I've not believed in that concept of hell for decades. I believe in a hell that is very real in this world that we walk through, but I don't believe we're going somewhere to be burned or anything. And yet, I still have terrors. I'll wake up in the night from nightmares about going to hell, or I'll try to go to sleep and I'll suddenly have these thoughts of like, what if I'm wrong though? What if there is a hell? What if, you know, and, and, and yeah. I think it's something it's that we terrifying. all process on different, in different ways and different journeys and different, um, you know, we all have our traumas to kind of do the work on and work through, you know, to steal your, um, your wife's phrase. Um, but, you know, we've got to go through those thoughts, but do, do you have um, maybe advice coming from maybe a more Eastern perspective on what people might do that might give them some tools to help process that stuff, coming to terms with that, coming to terms with these kind of, um, concepts that they don't even believe but still on some level are tormenting um yeah that makes on sense some level or... on some level um people do believe them yeah. um you know what 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 they learn to believe as children um whatever they come to as adults uh doesn't necessarily leave them it, it's lurking mm. in the background or below the surface of consciousness so it's it's very hard to navigate beyond uh, intellectually, actually, it's impossible to, to get completely beyond. So you have these um, scraps of terror that come up all the time. And, you know, I, I know that it, it, these things can be dealt with through an intensive meditation practice, like the one that I went through mm. for many years, many hours a day, you know, but it, that's not something that that most people have the time for. Sure, the, yeah, you've got wife and kids the, and even the interest in. And, yeah. <laughs> so, so you mentioned my wife's process uh, called mm. the work. Byron Katie is the name of my wife. Um, mm. a, a blessed soul, if if there ever was one. Yeah, um, and if people have not but, come across that name, they should definitely acquaint themselves. It's, it's phenomenal well, the, uh, the, stuff. The, the first 
book of hers, which is the textbook for the work, is called Loving What Is. Mm. So I highly recommend that even even more than my own books, because this is the handbook for uh, the way out of suffering. Mm. And um, And what her work allows people to do is to question every belief that they have, not necessarily a, 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 a huge religious belief, but it can be a, a belief about uh, your husband, your wife, your boss, uh, a, a politician, the way the world is. Like, um, my, my wife doesn't listen to me. That's a huge belief. And that can mm. be on a, on a par with um, there is such a thing as hell for some yeah. people. So, so the, the point is anything that you believe that causes stress, you identify and then you write down there, 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 she has what she calls the judge your neighbor worksheet. Mm -hmm. Um, It's available at free of charge at thework.com. So you, Mm -hmm. you fill out this judge your neighbor worksheet and you, you judge your husband or your neighbor or God or the world, etc., and then you subject each statement that you've written, each belief that you have that's causing you stress. You uh, you put that up against the four questions of the work, and the four questions are: Is it true? The second question is: Can I absolutely know that it's true? It's a very profound question. Mm-hmm. The third is. How do I react? What happens when I believe that thought? And with, when you're answering that question, you, you trace the physical sensations that the thought causes, the emotions that it causes, the way that you treat the person that you've been judging when you believe that about him or her, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it's a kind of um, schooling in the cause and effect of thoughts yeah. and beliefs. And then the fourth question is, who would I be without that thought? Mm-hmm. And then you take the thought and you turn it around. You find opposites. It's a way of experiencing the opposite of what you have believed maybe for your whole life. And you, uh, it allows you to realize that the opposite might be just as true or perhaps even truer as the original thought that you've been believing. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very powerful and extremely simple method of disentangling the beliefs that are causing you so much misery, or even it doesn't have to be so much misery. It could be even um, slight upset or annoyance. And the end result is a clear mind and a clear heart and a return to your original nature, which is basically heaven. In other words, a return to the Garden of Eden where you haven't eaten any of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You've, sure. you've eaten the tree of the fruit of the tree of, li- of wisdom, which is the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it really works. Um, people who are, are interested in what I just said are, are invited to tune into her. She is a um, webcast every day from Monday to Thursday. Uh, it's called. Um, at home with um, Byron Katie, uh, nine to ten o'clock Pacific time. So, uh, if if your viewers are finding yeah, sure. this interesting, they might well uh, tune into her. 
Cool. I'll make sure some links are in the in the show note for sure. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure people have links to those things. But I mean, right. me and my wife find that work so helpful. And I was actually talking to her the other day because I was, I was talking about um, the, the book that you've just, um, you know, this, this book that we're discussing that we one day will get around to discussing. <laughs> um, keep going off on these uh, rabbit trails. But um, and I was just saying to her, I was like, you know, for me, I've I've kind of followed Brian Kate for about, oh, gosh, couple of years, you know, I've been reading stuff and trying to do the work and, 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 and finding it remarkably helpful. She, my wife has found it extraordinarily helpful. And we'll frequently say to each other, you know, can you absolutely know that's true. You know, just, a, you know, you make a statement or something and you're like, can we know that's true? Um, and it's been so helpful for me at, at just really practically boiling down to the difference of, look, is this something that I, I am observing as, as just an observer, or am I judging this? Am I adding a whole story and a narrative behind this? And, and, and I, what I loved about the Joseph book, I was, I was talking to my wife as I was reading it. I was like, this to me somehow in story narrative has done something about applying the work in me on a whole level that, that reading, you know, I've read uh, mind at home itself. I've read, um, uh, I need them to love me. Is that really true? I think this one's called, sorry, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I've read, uh, uh love I, need what your is. Love. I need your love. Is yes. that true? That's the and I need your love. relationships. True. Yeah. And I've read all three and I thought these are great. I love it. I've applied it and it's definitely helped, but there was something really deep about engaging with it in, um, maybe it was the fact that I'm very familiar with this spiritual as part of my traditional path. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but you can see Joseph going through this experience of learning to um, step back from his judgments and, and enter into a place of observance, kind of what you're talking about there. Stop eating that fruit of judging what's good and bad and start learning to live from that, that tree of life, the, the place of wisdom. Um, yeah. it's, it's such a, it's a powerful a difference. You know, it's a beautiful story. Tolstoy, who, in my opinion, is the greatest novelist who ever lived, called mm. it the most beautiful story in the world. Wow. And, um, and you know, he knew something about storytelling. But the reason I love it and, uh, is that it, it puts a spirit, the most spiritually mature character in the Bible, to my mind, um, mm. at, the, at the center of it. And, and gives us a story where um, the, the beginning is in suffering and the end is in forgiveness, which is a, 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 a beautiful storyline. And it allows the uh, process and act of forgiveness to acquire flesh and blood. Uh, it, forgiveness may seem a little abstract, when you're reading about it in other places in the Bible, for sure. example, but but this shows you the the how and the why of it, and and gives you the experience of coming to the state of spiritual maturity and what it feels like to be able to forgive um, effortlessly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love the the original story, and I was fascinated with trying to make it. Uh, even more uh, detailed and richer for, for contemporary readers. It yeah. was a wonderful experience working on it. Yeah. It feels to me, uh, you know, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, you know, I've, I've done my, I've done my years, you know, I've put in my hours um, and I, I was taught about forgiveness all the time, but it was never really taught as a practice. It was never, you were never giving an underlying kind of, um, 
work to process through to come to forgiveness and and on some level joseph comes to a place in in the story of having a way of approaching things that he doesn't even need to forgive. You talk about this a little bit in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could, could you talk to that? Because I think most Christians are taught readily, oh, you need to forgive. You need to forgive your wife for cheating on that guy and you know just bring him back or that husband that be- be- beats you. Oh, just forgive them. And you know, some really toxic things. And, and then some more lighthearted things of like, oh, you know, you're, you know, you just need to forgive people because they, you know, stole cookie out of the cookie jar. There's always things, but there's never kind of a place about actually doing some heart transformation work it's more of a kind of a it's like telling the kids forgive your brother for hitting you and it's they say yeah. oh, i forgive you and you're like that kid has not forgiven anyone <laughs> um, no it feels like that was my path of forgiveness within christianity um no one really did that that work of kind of it's it's, it's difficult it. you know and a lot of people when they read for example you know the the saying of jesus that you should forgive uh 70 times seven it seems impossible. I mean, even forgiving one times one seems impossible right. because the way it, the way it's talked about is of uh, from a position of spiritual superiority. Here I mm. am, the great the great forgiver, forgiving you way down there, even though you may not deserve it. And and the experience of forgiveness is not like that at all. Um, what Joseph comes to is is realize, a realization that forgiveness really means seeing that there's nothing to forgive. Mm-hmm. Seeing seeing that there's nothing to forgive because the person who committed the offense, the quote quote unquote offense, what was completely uh, believing a mistaken and un- untrue thought and couldn't help what he or she was doing. So uh, it's what, um, you know, what Jesus supposedly said from the cross in one of the sayings that were put into his mouth by one of the evangelists, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Whether or not he said that, I, I doubt that he did, but it's a beautiful saying mm. because it, it, it includes the awareness that when somebody does something, they do it because they don't know any better. Even a, a murderer or a rapist is acting out of purely deluded, unconscious motives and can't help himself. My wife uh, works with um, life uh, lifers at prisons, murderers and rapists, wow. and um, all the time. And um, they turn out to be, uh, some of them turn out to be spiritually hungry for any kind of of light and um and and mortified at their earlier self who who did something so so dreadful you know so father forgive them for they know not what they do um so so coming to that point of understanding that forgiveness means realizing that there's nothing to forgive is the end of a process it's not something that you Mm. can learn right away it's something that you come to naturally when your heart opens up to reality or you could say opens up to god god being another word for reality um so so it is it is a uh, a process and it can sometimes take many years but it's not something that you know um you can do uh, by uh 
by the willpower, you know. So, so the saying when it's misunderstood, uh, 70 times, forgive them 70 times seven, it creates all sorts of guilt and uh, and mm-hmm. self beating up, et cetera, et cetera, because it's impossible to um, to follow Jesus's words there if you're understanding them in a certain way, but uh, in a different way, they may be a pointer towards something real and true and um, and and beautiful. Yeah, no, that's that's really yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And I guess something else that I've observed over time as well, um, again in my experience. Um, a lot of the time people's understanding of forgiveness kind of when you've got that high standard of, Oh, 70 times seven, right. We, we still always give people second chances, maybe a third, if you are like really lucky, but like, you know, by the time you're getting 70 times seven, I mean, I don't get to that many chances of many people. Um, it feels like when there isn't work done internally on, on whatever it is that needs to be done um, to forgive someone on that very surface level um, opens us up to a lot of abuse and pain and suffering as well. You know, yeah. I see that again and, it, and, and again. it doesn't, the point is it doesn't work. Mm. It's not possible. Um, uh, my wife, um, here, here's a story about the work and forgiveness. And I, I think mm. it could be very useful. Um, we know somebody who um, spent his whole twenties and thirties believing the thought, my mother ruined my life. And it ruined his relationships and it made his work life difficult and made certainly his family relationships impossible. But he believed this thought. He never Mm. stopped to question it. It was reality for him. My mother ruined my life. And then he discovered Buddhism. And in Buddhism, there's a, a wonderful practice in some schools of Buddhism called um, loving kindness practice. And it consists of a, of a meditation where you send loving kindness first to yourself, and then you send loving kindness to the people you love and your friends, and then you send it to neutral people, uh, people you meet in the street maybe or read about, etc. And then you send it to people that you dislike. Then you send mm-hmm. it to people that you hate. Then you send it to people like Hitler or, uh, or politicians that you hate the guts of, President Trump, for example, for many people. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really brings the heart to peace in, in many ways and is a wonderful practice. So this man discovered that practice and he started doing it. And the, and the furthest circle was to his mother. Hmm. So he, he was able, after many months of this practice and after great resistance because he he really didn't want to do it he he just disliked her so and finally he was able to send her loving kindness and it worked and it really changed his relationship with her up to a point and then he discovered the work and what he realized after doing the work for a while was he had been sending loving kindness to the woman who had ruined his life which was not necessarily his mother. So he, he, he did a worksheet on his mother. And the first sentence was my mother, I, I'm angry at my mother because she ruined my life. And then he questioned my mother ruined my life. Is it true? And I absolutely know that it's true. Um, how do I react when I believe that my mother ruined my life? Well, I can't stand her. I, 
can't even talk to her on the phone. You know, she, he followed mm-hmm. out the cause and effect uh, very meticulously. And uh, who would I be if I didn't believe this thought? Well, I would be open to her. My heart would be open. I'd be a better son, etc. And then he tried to turn it around. My mother didn't ruin my life. Mm. And, and when you turn it around, the instructions are to find examples of how this might be as true as or possibly even truer than the original statement. He hit a wall. He could not find one example of how his mother didn't ruin his life. And he worked at it for hours, and then he worked at it for a few days. And finally, after four or five days, suddenly he remembered a birthday party that she had given to him when he was six years old. And it was a revelation. He had completely forgotten that, buried it in his subconscious. When he found one example, he was able to find a second example, and then a third example, and a fourth example. It opened up the whole subject. He found his heart overflowing with love for his mother, and it uh, wow. transformed his relationship. So, um, so the point is that um, it can it can take uh, some deep diving into uh, questioning of very uh, powerful beliefs, beliefs that are equivalent to your whole identity. I mean, this guy mm. thought he was the, the man whose mother ruined his life. That was his whole identity. And to question that belief took amazing courage and patience yeah. and, uh, you know, strength of character. But it, it, uh, it changed his life forever. So mm. this is, this is uh, one example of how questioning can lead to the kind of um, opening up of the heart that forgiveness uh, requires. Yeah, no, it's, that's a beautiful story. And Isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I was so yeah. moved by that. Yeah, and, and we've all, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe you haven't, but I, I know I have, and I know my wife has, I know many other people that have worked on the work. We all hit those roadblocks with something and we just go, nope, that, that person is irredeemable, you know, like, or that situation is just, nope, there is nothing that is possible that I can find redeeming about that or whatever it is. And, and yeah, um, no, it's it a takes, beautiful it, thing to be able to. It takes, it takes a lot of humility and you, you may come up with a thought, a belief that seems just too embedded for you to even touch, like, um, mm. you know, the belief in help for, for one example. And you don't, you don't need to do those beliefs uh, at the beginning. You can put them off, uh, sure. you know, until you're ready for them and, uh, and, uh, and realize that when you work on what may seem like a trivial belief, um, my neighbor's a jerk, uh, that may give you as much of a, a, a powerful realization as if you were working on... Um, um, God hates sinners, mm, for example. Yeah. You can't yeah. you can't know in advance. Um, even even something that seems trivial may be the key to your happiness. For all you know, you just don't know. Yeah. And it feels. I mean, this is like a practice, right? And so it really is. You know, um, doing a practice in the easiest safest most comfortable environment is usually the best way to start, right? And so exactly. your whole life is falling around around your mother. Don't start there, you know, <laughs> work no. on the gardener or the neighbor or, you know, something small. Um, and, and in that, I think there's something 
deep that happens where actually it becomes natural to then process it with bigger stuff anyway. Your first response is going, oh, I've yeah. done this work. I know how to immediately ask a question or challenge it. Or um, Yeah, what's, 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 really, what's really important is to make a commitment at some point to doing the practice daily. And it's mm. like it's like prayer. It's um, you know, if you if you do it only in times of crisis, it may not work so well. But if you're doing it as a spiritual practice or meditation every day, um, come uh, sun, come shine, comes some sun, come darkness, come anything. You know, every single day, that's what um, allows you to uh, to find the treasure. Um, so it's it's really important for people who are serious about uh, freeing themselves uh, from suffering to make a commitment to a daily practice. In my experience, that's true. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, that's so true. And yeah, I guess um, something that I've found in myself is I'm trying to let go of my ego, let go of the, the fill that is not the, uh, the observer, but the, the judger, the participator, the moaner, the complainer, the stressed out, you know, addict of my stories and my narrative. Um, it feels that that fill, that ego trip just doesn't like to forgive, but also really struggles to um, receive forgiveness as well. It feels that the ego is so wrapped up in these stories, if that makes sense. And Yes, um, it sure does. You, you talk about, um, I can't remember where it was in the book, but you, you talked about the self that is beyond the conscious self. I, I don't remember what part of the book that was in. Um, no, I just remember no, noting no, I... down. <laughs> I remember noting down that and I was like, that's a really interesting phrase almost. Um, but I mean, it's obviously a, a concept that is um, near and dear to um, Buddhism, Taoism, quite a lot of the Eastern religions. Um mm-hmm. Is, is this part of what it takes to engage with forgiving others and, and accepting forgiving to, to, to kind of um, learn to kind of transcend that, that ego or, or is that, is that a helpful practice? I'm sure it's helpful, but is it a required practice to be able to kind of step? No, not at all. As a, as a matter of fact, if you try to do it, um, Mm -hmm. you, you won't succeed. Um, mainly because there's no such thing as the ego. So you're actually believing into existence, something that doesn't exist. All that's necessary is to identify the thoughts that are causing stress one by one and question them. Nothing else is necessary. Um, So uh, it's like, you know, it's like trying to follow Jesus, when he says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. Mm. Um, he's, he's in my, the way I take that is, is that um, judging and being judged are part of the same continuum. But if you try not to judge, you'll never succeed because that's what the mind does as uh, its natural function. It's like, mm. uh, this is often said in Buddhism too. It's like the spleen of producing bile. It's simply what it does. And you can't, you can't um, stop it. And the more you try, the more it will keep producing judgments. But mm. if you take your judgments and identify them and then question them, they ease up by themselves. Katie often says, 
I don't let go of my thoughts, I question them, then they let go of me. And there's nothing truer than that. It's, it's a natural process and it's effortless. Um, so all you need to do is to question what you believe and uh, that truth, as uh, Jesus says, will set you free. The, yeah. the truth of seeing, first of all, seeing your thoughts clearly when you write them down in black and white, identifying them, writing them down, you see them clearly, then you're able to see through them and to see how insubstantial they are when you go through the cause and effect and when you, uh, when you see clearly who you would be if you didn't believe what you're believing and then turn them around. So uh, understanding is always the key to the process, understanding the truth and that's what let, uh, sets you free. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, I think that's if so there's, beautiful. If there's one verse in the gospel that that I would um, uh, recommend that people hold in their minds and hearts and work with and and deepen, it's that that the, the truth will set you free. Mm. And nobody mm. else's truth. It's not Jesus's truth. It's not the Bible's truth. It's your truth because nobody else's truth can set you free. It's it's when you absolutely see with crystal clear vision in your blood in your bones that something isn't true that's when you're set free like you know my mother ruined my life that's not true and i i can feel that with all of myself and then next time i talk to my mother on the phone she's a new person a new human Mm. being that i've never met before yeah It's, it's it's miraculous yeah. I often, when I talk about this, I often use an example. When I was a younger teenager, I was so obsessed with the the senior pastor loving me. I wanted him to be like, look at this amazing, good, godly person. Oh, what a wonderful, it was just such an ego trip of like, please, please, please love me, love me. You know, it's a scared child that wanted attention or whatever it was. Um, but I remember one day he he came into the service and he was walking down the aisle and I said, oh, hi, how are you doing, Pastor? And he just like, he looked at me and then he just kept walking. And I remember immediately just thinking, what a dick. You know, like this guy, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm always being nice. I'm, I'm being kind to this guy, saying hello. And he just ignores me. And I remember he got up and he gave a message. I think it was about loving, you know, and whatever. And I was like, this guy's talking about loving. He's like, just ignore me. And I didn't even hear what he was saying. You know, I was just so consumed with this thing. And I, I was just, utter. I was like, I'm done with this guy. Like, what is he, you know, it's really funny. It's such a small thing, but it got me. It just grabbed me. Um, and I remember after the service, we we're talking probably about an hour after um, I'm talking to some people afterwards and, and I feel a tap on my shoulder, I turn around and it's the pastor and he says, Phil, he says, I'm so sorry. He says, I was up all night because um, someone in the church, their, their mother had died and I was in the hospital with them all night and I was praying with them and just comforting them. He says, I got home at 5.30. He says, I had two hours sleep, got up, rushed a sermon prep, came in the door and and I I, I heard you say hello. And he's like, but it was only about 10 minutes into the worship session that I suddenly realized we're all singing. And I'm like, Oh, Phil said hello. And I didn't even acknowledge it. And he says, I just wanted to say, I'm really sorry. And, and it's one of my most pinnacle moments. So it took me probably a decade later before I actually realized the dynamic of it and the reality of it. But I, in my, in my experience of that and my judgment of that, created a whole world, a world where this pastor hated me and he secretly didn't even like me and he's just been putting up with me and this pastor, and I'm like, I'm, I'm fighting all services. I hate him, like I'm done with him, you know? And then just that change of him going, hey, here's what's actually going on. You could never have known this. 
So why did you, why did you assume anything? I'm suddenly like, oh, this guy's the greatest thing ever again. And I love him and he loves me. And, you know, we're back into, and I still went on my trip trying to like get him to love me still probably for another, you know, two or three years. Um, but, but gosh, our yeah. brain, the way we create these worlds to suffer in. No, we don't, yeah. we don't live in reality. We live in our stories of reality. And that's a, yeah. that's a beautiful example of how that works. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess one of the things that, and, and this might be the Christian upbringing. I, I've probably spent the last five or six years um, really looking at Eastern religion. I, I love it. I find it so fascinating. I find it so, it just resonates with me on a very deep level. Um, and I feel maybe in the last six months or a year, I've found the space and maybe something has clicked and changed where I've actually gone into it as well. It's, it's not just something I've studied, but it's something I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm starting to embody some of this. But I think something that held me back a lot was I didn't want to become this robot, passionless, you know, Zen, you know, like you, you think of the, 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 the guru sitting on a mountain for 40 years and it's like, wow, that sounds like perfect Nirvana peace. But also I kind of like, you know, the extremes and the, 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 the passion of life and the, and the, and, and the day to day, all the experience. And I think for me, I had a very, um, a very warped perspective of what was required to go into this practice, what, you know, to let go of, of, you know, your expectations, you know, the reality is if you have an expectation, that's the fruit of what really causes suffering, these kind of desires. And, and you go, well, yeah, but I kind of like desiring stuff. I like an expectation. I like some of those components. And I guess, do you have um, thoughts on people that are kind of wrestling with those components of, um, you know, is, is there a way to engage with, you know, Zen, with Taoism, with these kind of um, practices that isn't, um, you know, sitting in an aesthetic room on a hardwood floor with nothing in the room, kind of just, you know, arming or whatever the picture is that a lot of um, Westerners that maybe haven't experienced this, um, this, is there, because there, that is also a way of people doing it, right? There are people that go after that and try well, there and aesthetically are- kind of, yeah, there are. And, and it's, it's really um, a misunderstanding of mm. um, what, what detachment is. I mean, uh, in my experience, detachment isn't something that's uh, passionless and cold blooded. It simply means um, seeing through your own stories. Mm. So uh, you don't get caught in um in your stories and beliefs about the world. You're living in reality rather than what you think of about mm. reality. So, um, you know, uh, by trial and error in my own many years of Zen practice, um, I, I had to, well, I was lucky in the first place because the Zen master that I was living and studying with for many years, um, whom I loved very dearly, was a really juicy guy, very full of passion of all, all mm. sorts but also had a clear mind. And my wife, if you've ever seen her um, do any of her um, videos, which are all over YouTube, mm. is um, as juicy as you can get. Um, yeah, the yeah. Opposite You'd be hard pressed to say there was nothing there, <laughs> no passion. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just the, the heart, the heart is so full and so, so overflowing with love. Um, that's an example of, um, of detachment. Uh, in the sense that there's nothing in between her and our original nature. There's simply 
the heart alive and and um, and able to love everything and everybody. So that's the end result. It's it's not uh, some desiccated, uh, ice ice blooded um, human being who doesn't care about anything. Mm. Um, uh, there's a which reminds me of the line from uh, T. S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday. Wonderful line that that I discovered in my twenties. Teach us to care and not to care. Some of us need to learn how not to care in a loving way, as well as to care in a loving way. It's, it's, it, they're opposite sides of the same coin. So, so no, um, you know, I would be concerned as you are concerned about uh, any tradition or practice that resulted in a, uh, a lack of caring, a lack of heart. That's not my experience of Zen training yeah. or, of, or of the Tao Te Ching, for example, which is one of um, the books that I've translated and, and is yeah. very dear to my heart. It, that's a book that that portrays um, the fully mature human being who's able to be in a position of leadership and of um, of universal caring and uh, and full of of the most life-giving passion, but not of passions that result in suffering. Mm. That's the difference. Yeah. No, that's that's yeah. beautiful. Desire, desire, really is is as the Buddhists say, as the Buddha said, is a key to it, because um, when you're desiring something from your small self, uh, you're trying to shape reality in in a certain direction, and it will never go in that direction. It's it's simply uh, it's futile and it's useless. But if you're able to embody um, Jesus's prayer, not what I want, but what you want. Mm. That's, that's the essence of it. You know, um, giving up your, um, your will into reality. What Katie says is, um, this I think is a, a great help. Uh, if you argue with reality, you lose, but only a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so that's that's saying in different words what Jesus said. Yeah. You know, not not what I will, but what you but what but what you will. Yeah. You God, yeah. what you God will. In other words, what reality presents you with, whether it's um, you know, uh, a lot of money, a little money, health, sickness. This is in the marriage vows as well. Um, you, uh, healthy children or a child who dies a wife who loves you or a wife who leaves you for another man. Um, all of that is, is God presenting you with what God wills. In other mm -hmm. words, reality. And if you're able to love what is, whatever it is, however good or bad it seems to you at first, then you'll be a happy human being. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And I've definitely... I've had glimpses of it <laughs> in my day to day, you know, I, it, there's, and it's the moments where you're meditating and you, you start to realize this isn't about, you know, having a time where nothing happens for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. It's about the moment where everything that's happening is happening for the 20 or 30, but you know, you're, you're just 
you're there and you're present suddenly it's like a psychedelic trip or something right it's like you 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 suddenly are like you know maybe a low dosage like you're like whoa colors are color like that's incredible you know you don't care about anything you just care about the concept of a color it's just amazing like so present in that one thing that you're not casting out of that it's 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 that's a really important kind of experience when i was a young um Zen student, um, young and hungry for, for the truth. Um, I did a couple of um, hundred day solitary retreats and those are uh, not easy, but the instructions for the, and and the, uh, the regimen was uh, 20 hours of meditation a day, four hours sleep. So it's, you have to go through a great deal of fatigue as well as um, all sorts of, um, psychological and psychic and spiritual upheavals um so it's not easy but it's it's it was a very uh resulted in a great deal of um powerful um understanding but my instructions from the zen master for these retreats were instructions that sometimes people are given at the beginning of their practice too that whatever happens in side your consciousness in other words whatever the content of your consciousness is you watch it come you watch it go so that intense pain in your knees for example is equal to an ecstatic religious experience a, a vision of um the blessed virgin or uh, uh, or the uh, the buddha of of uh, universal compassion uh, or a memory of uh, something your mother said to you when you were four years old that you didn't like too much, or um, or a feeling of um, stomach upset, et cetera, et cetera. It's all mind stuff. One of these kinds of experiences no better than the other, and you treat them the same so that you don't get involved in the ecstasies and you don't get involved in the pain or the um, the unpleasant memories or the the uh the stuck places in your uh, where your ego is raging etc etc it's all mind stuff and that's a very Mm. useful kind of instruction yeah that's that's actually helped me a lot with um so i suffer from chronic pain i've had chronic pain in my hands and my wrists for about 10 years and um it's it's not a it's not linked to a physical injury anymore. Whatever was there is healed, and so it's it, my brain has the wires have crossed, and they've learned to be in pain when I use my hands in certain ways. And um, and meditative practice of just observing the pain um, when I can do it, it's very you know what's really hard to do when you're meditating and when you're in pain meditating. <laughs> it's the yeah. last thing you want to do. You just want to you know be grumpy or oh, I can't think straight or whatever. Um, but when I am able to go, okay, Phil, but you know, this helps. And so just to calm myself to sit and just to picture my pain, follow it, observe it. What shape is it? What, what, how does it feel? What color is that pain in my body? You know, where, oh, it's, it's actually not just all of my hand. It's actually that finger and, oh, it moves. Interesting. Um, and just observing it. It's amazing how suddenly you're like, this isn't actually painful. This is interesting. And nothing's isn't that, changed. Isn't that, isn't that That's incredible. fabulous? Mm. yeah it's a really beautiful thing and and how much more we can do that and how many other um how many other ways um it's it's really profound how that how that works i guess it is um you mentioned at one point um in the book you talked about joseph learns not to think himself into a future 
And I guess is this kind of, in a lot of ways, what we're talking about? It, it, to think yeah. yourself into a future, you suddenly have to give a narrative to what is presently, to kind of give it a trajectory almost. Um, exactly this will so. become this. Um, exactly so. It's, it's always the story of a future. You know, and and since we can never know the future, it's always an untrue story of the future. So, yeah. you know, the more the more we learn through a practice of meditation or prayer or doing the work, the more we realize that there's nothing real ever but what's happening right now, that there's no such thing as the past except an imagined past, and there's no such thing except an imagined future. It, it helps us, that realization, it helps us to bring our mind back to what is actually reality. And reality mm. is always in the present. As Katie says, not even that, because now is always gone by the time we realize the now. Right. So, you know, you're basically, it's a, a practice of, the, the practice of um, inquiry is a practice of cutting the ground away from your feet. So everything mm. you, you stand on or try to stand on, you can't. And there's nothing left eventually but the what truth. Is. But what is? Mm. And not even wow. that. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's <laughs> very it useful. Not, it isn't it's anymore. <laughs> very useful. I mean even even the even the thoughts that um, that are beautiful that don't call str- cause stress, uh, you can question and um, and work your way beyond even those mm. thoughts. So you know, one of the um, one of the sentences I have in uh, the book uh, is uh, about Abraham realizing that um, f- faith is the realization that what we can't know is wiser than all our knowing, and mm-hmm. that that can be very scary at the beginning, but it's uh, it's the essence of um, of uh, of spiritual practice to my mind. Yeah. It feels like this. Um, I, I know. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan um, monk or friar. I'm not sure which priest. I, I have One a friend who likes him. I haven't read him okay. myself. He, he has a book called Falling Upwards, where he kind of paints um, a trajectory of life in two kind of stages. And and you know you have the stage where you're building your life, you're building the ego, you're building a story and a narrative, and then usually at some point something shifts, something happens, some great suffering. And suddenly you're in this second stage of life where everything's coming apart. You're slowly realizing all your stories are not true. Your ego maybe isn't as whatever you thought it was. Um, and you're trying to navigate that, whatever that looks like. Um, and I guess, um, gosh, I just completely lost my train of thought as to why I brought that up. Um, but I, I guess my, my point is, 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 do we have to go through an accumulation of knowledge? Is that, is that something that you think we have to go through as people? We have to go through a stage of, you know, acquiring knowledge and developing an ego, building stories, building narratives for that to come away. You know, I, what I'm, I guess I'm wondering is for people that are raising kids and things, like how, how do you, you know, how do you teach kids this practice? Is this something kids can learn or do they need to kind of, build something to unbuild or learn something to unlearn, you know, the, the, the wisdom of, un, of knowing what you don't know. I, I'm always intrigued by that, especially you look at the psychological yeah, development I, of children. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, I don't really know. I, I know mm. that that's um, what usually happens. I also know that there are very young children who um, are now 
practicing the work, even mm -hmm. five or six year olds and, and certainly high school kids. Um, and there are teachers in public schools who are, who are using it. And I think there'll be a different kind of child who grows up with this kind yeah. of education. So, yeah. uh, I mean, how amazing to have a, a young child question um, difficult thoughts. I mean, can you imagine what, what yeah. you or I would have been like if we had learned that at such an early age? Game so, changing. <laughs> yeah, game changing, yeah. So uh, no, I don't think it's necessary to have to stumble into the kind of um, yeah. ridiculous uh, um, illusions, delusions that, that we learned as uh, when we were growing up. Yeah. No, me, me and my wife don't have kids yet, but that is on the cards at some point. And, and we talk, we were talking about it just even this week. We were like, gosh, like us just thinking about our stuff that we're working through with our parents, our school life, our church things, whatever we had to go through that we're now kind of tearing apart and going, oh, actually, is that true? Like, how am I allowing that to still affect us? And just going, gosh, even, even if that has to happen, but it can be nipped at the buds 10 minutes in rather than 10 years in, that's yeah, got to really. be a good thing, you know? Um, it's a very you, good thing. Has Katie has Katie put together? I know that you work very closely with Katie in putting together her books. Have you guys done something for kids that kind of age bracket? Is um, there like a kids not, book or something that would be amazing? In my mind, well, I'm actually, like, wow, that's awesome. Actually, yes, there there is a, a book for kids for really young kids, like uh, four or five, maybe even three. Um, it is called Tiger. Tiger, is it true? Oh, okay. And it's a story. It's a story about a little tiger who. Um, who undergoes a, um, a disappointment and um, a wise turtle, I think it is, comes and teaches him how to question his thoughts. And uh, we've heard dozens and dozens of, of stories from parents who read this book to their little kids and um, kids love it and learn mm. from it too. So uh, it's, it's unsophisticated, but it's enough of a story to um, really have an effect on very young children. Yeah. yeah. I'll yeah. tell you, Stephen, that's what I need. I need the unsophisticated. <laughs> that's the one that gets me the most. I should have started with Tiger Tiger. What was I thinking? Tiger Tiger. You found, you found your book. That's me. Um, there I got my daily practice. I'd probably actually get a book finished as well. Um, there you <laughs> so go. to get through your books. Um, and I've got to say, that's one thing I loved about your book. It was so easy to, it was such a, because it's such a beautiful narrative. It's a great story. I think you did a wonderful job fleshing out this this amazing story um there's so maybe many components maybe, you're, maybe your your uh, uh listeners should I, I shouldn't say listeners your viewers um would be interested in hearing a couple of chapters that's what i was going to say w would you mind reading some i know that you mentioned oh i'd love to. Like to yeah i'd love to and, Please. and um I, you know, I'd love to read the passage. Uh, there are three short chapters when he's in thrown into the pit by his yeah. brothers and where he comes to the, this life-changing realization. Shall I do that? Please do. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yes. So um, I'm going to put on my reading glasses. And, you can't do uh, it from memory? <laughs> you know, I, I have, um, I have the experience when I, when I write a book, I, I really let go of it because I'm on to the next one. Yeah. And then when I reread it like a year later or two years later, it's completely new to me. And it's as wow. if someone else has written it. Yeah, this I, is good. I, I like this guy. <laughs> I know. I stop and think, oh my gosh, who wrote this? And then I realize it was me, but it really wasn't me because I'm, 
somebody different. So wow. it's it's a nice experience. That's beautiful. Um, <laughs> so this this uh, this chapter is called In the Pit. At first, he was too sore and frightened to move. He kept drifting in and out of consciousness, and he lost track of time. Was it only for hours that he had been lying here on the cold stone slab, or had it been for days? He heard some animal groaning, and he was frightened again. Then he realized that the animal was him. As the pain subsided a bit, he was able to think. Why had his brothers done this to him? How could they be so cruel? How could they not see who he was, the chosen one, the salvation of them all? He felt sad, angry, and bewildered. Nothing made sense. Then in the midst of his confusion, a glimmer of insight. Something he had done had so deeply offended his brothers that they wanted to kill him. Was it something or was it everything? his whole way of being. Across the endless shivering hours, he could see himself from the outside as the pampered favorite who sits at the right hand of the father, expecting the whole world to come worship at his feet. He was appalled. His heart ached at the arrogance of it and at his foolish sense of entitlement. He realized that he was entitled to nothing, not even his own life. Naked, chilled, bruised, blood caked, terrified, stinking of urine and feces, he prayed not for forgiveness, but for a little understanding of how he had gotten himself into such an unholy mess. He prayed for a little humility, which if he ever emerged alive, he could follow through the night as a caravan follows the North Star. The next chapter is called Learning Humility. There are just three chapters that I'll Mm, be reading. That's great. The way up and the way down are one and the same, wrote an ancient philosopher. The stone cistern where Joseph lay was the womb of his transformation. He had to descend to the depths of himself and stay there in that inner darkness without refuge, without hope. This was the only path that could lead him upward. Then he had to find his way through a world of paradox where exile is homecoming, slavery is freedom, and not knowing is the ultimate wisdom. No one, of course, wants to suffer. And yet the fortunate among us manage to learn from our suffering what can be learned nowhere else. We become clearly, joyously aware of the cause of all suffering. Instead of sleep, the remembered pain drips into the heart, and an understanding dawns on us, even against our will, that there is a violent grace that shapes our ends. Humility follows as a natural result. We learn how to lose control. Mm -hmm. We discover that we never had it in the first place. Humility looks very ordinary. It's hello and goodbye. At first, it may seem like dying. What you were so proud of when you were flying high, you now recognize as selfish. It falls apart under scrutiny, and there is a profound change that takes place within you. Mm. There is no humiliation or shame in any of this. It's total surrender to what is. You discover that you have let go 
into an intelligence that is incomparably vaster than yours. And it's the gentlest, most comfortable feeling. You stand in what's left of you and you die to self and you keep on dying. It's like a tree that lets go of its leaves. That beautiful clothing has fallen away and the tree just stands there in the cold of winter, totally exposed, totally surrendered. And there's one more called a gradual letting go. For a day and a night, for days and nights it seems, it seemed as he drifted in and out of consciousness, Joseph lay in the pit struggling with the realization that had dawned on him. The cold, filth, and physical pain were negligible in comparison with the moral pain he was feeling. Mm -hmm. Memories of his arrogance and unkindness toward his brothers flickered through his mind and made him heartsick. He was deeply ashamed of himself. It felt as if he had become Adam in the story his father had told him so many times and had eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a good thing because suddenly his eyes were opened and he knew that he was naked before God, before himself, stripped of all defense and justification. How could he have been so self-absorbed, such a sleepwalker? And where had his sense of chosenness led him but to this great sadness which sat on his heart now like the weight of the sorry world. He needed to make amends to his brother, that was clear. But how? An apology seemed like a poor kind of restitution. Besides, they, were too, they would be too enraged to listen. They would see it as an attempt to talk his way out of danger. Anyway, the point was moot. He might be left to die here. He might be dragged out and beaten to death. The shame burned inside him. Forgive me, he prayed, not to God, but to his brothers, though he knew this was absurd. There was no way out. There were no solutions. There was nothing to do, nothing to pray, but may your will be done. He found himself sitting up now with his back against one of the pit's stone walls. Overhead, the stars looked on in their frigid brilliance. May your will be done. But there was something very odd about the prayer. Wasn't it too an act of arrogance? Who was he to be telling God what should or shouldn't happen? Of course God's will would be done. How could it not? Everything that happened was God's will or else it wouldn't have happened. You would have to be very dull indeed if you, if you didn't realize that. Had his brothers acted against God's will? It was insane even to think it. So strange as it sounded, it was God who had thrown him into this pit. It was God who would let him live now or die. His brothers ultimately had nothing to do with it. They were just God's instruments. And he himself, think what he might, do what he might, could do nothing but God's will. Not I, but you, he thought. Not what I want, but what you want. I am not doing any of this, nor are my brothers. Whatever we think we are doing, 
We are all doing what is best in your sight. We are all doing your, your will, dear Lord, because we are all the work of your hands. This conclusion was not reasoned out. It came to him in a flash. It was not an idea. It was a certainty. All the shame and sorrow he had been feeling began to dissipate, as if the sun were beginning to shine out from behind a layer of impenetrable fog. Even more, he began to be aware of, could it be, a sense of elation rising in his chest. Was life really this simple? Could what had happened actually be something good? What he had been struggling against was now letting go of him, or he of it. He had been trying to fight against the current of reality, and now he was riding it, his mind a sleek skiff in the onrushing river, letting it take him wherever it wished. The direction didn't matter. His life didn't matter. All that mattered was the letting go. Mm. So beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it, I just love the... It's, it's a whole level that we don't tend to engage with. Those of us that are familiar with these stories, we've read the stories probably countless times, even as young kids, the story probably got read to us. We maybe even acted them out on a stage somewhere at some point as a kid or, you know, but we just, um, to, to, to dive into that pit with Joseph and go, what was it like to be in a pit for a while? As you know, you just mentioned even like filth and all the stuff. I mean, you just don't think, gosh, like, yeah, that sounds like a humbling process. Yes, that sounds like a everything being stripped away completely from you, you know, lying there naked and just utterly not knowing if you're going to live, you know, um, uh, just profoundly terrifying in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, wow. Um, I, yeah. So something I, I was... You know, the, the wonderful thing about the, uh, the Genesis stories, they were, they were um, told by very great, storytellers are written by very great writers and one characteristic is that they are extremely compressed mm. so that one sentence can contain a chapter in a in a modern novel for example All, there's so much that's implicit in these stories um and that's why the um later on many centuries later um they gave birth to what uh what the Jewish tradition calls the art of midrash. Midrash is a word for a creative elaboration. So the, the ancient rabbis, when they were meditating on these stories and praying about them and finding difficulties and, and, and wondering why the storyteller said this or that, and how could this contradiction be there, etc. It was a process of inhabiting the story over a lifetime or certainly over over weeks months and years and really walking around with the story living and breathing inside you it's not just yeah. kind of reading it and in, uh, in church for uh, for 10 minutes or something like that it's sure it's, it's letting yourself become the story become the character and um, and re relating every detail to your own life trying to find a um, an incident, a relationship, uh, an experience in your life that is something like 
the experience, what the experience must have been like for Joseph in the pit. So, yeah, so that's yeah. what I did um, in preparation for, or in the process of yeah, of writing yeah. these things. I could always find some place in my life, um, usually during my Zen practice, or um, as I as I got to know Katie, for example, who is my great teacher, um, where 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 I could find a, a resonance to the great passages in the Joseph story. Mm -hmm. And if I've succeeded here, it's only because I was uh, able to uh, be totally personal and, and, um, and become Joseph or have him become me. And mm -hmm. uh, if, if I've done my job, there's a resonance of um, authenticity about this where I'm not reading it as at a distance, like um, seeing light come through a, a stained glass window at a distance, but getting to the place where the story, I've eaten the story, I've digested it, it's already in my, in my stomach and intense intestines, not only my heart and brain, but all over in my body. And, and, um, and it's real in every part of my life. So I hope that that's what a reader will experience when they're yeah. reading these words. But certainly there were points in, in reading it that I, I found myself, I, I had a lovely day in the garden reading the second half. The first half I read in my bed with the lamp on while my wife slept, you know, trying to squeeze through. And I was like, oh, I'm going to interview Stephen soon. I need to get reading this. And then the next day it was lovely and sunny. I took the afternoon off. I was like, I'll sit in the garden, read it. And and I found myself sitting in the garden. And I'm like, I'm, I'm tearing up. And I'm like, what is this? And, I, and just realizing, taking a step back and going, I, this is, it's reading me. I'm reading, uh, I can't remember which passage it was, which part it was, but it was something that Joseph was going through. And I was like, I've gone through that. That's me. And, and it's, and it's, it's putting into words something that happened on a very deep level in me that I don't think I'd articulated before. I don't think I'd really kind of pulled out and, and opened up and gone, wow, what a profound, um, uh, you know, teacher that was to me, you know, that, that moment of, um, you, you, you call it violent grace. I know, um, Ram Dass calls it fierce grace. You know, these, these moments where you're like, wouldn't sign up for that, please. No. <laughs> um, but you yeah. know, uh, if I, if I remember it was, it was through, I had a very, um, it was a very tame divorce to be honest with you. It was very lovely and wonderful and amicable. And it was a, and, and it's one of the greatest and most beautiful moments in my life I look back on and I'm so pleased and I'm so happy and I'm so thankful because it's a better situation for me. And I really hope it's a better situation for the other party. We're not connected anymore, but my God, was that not a fun process? You know, no, no one yeah. likes to, you know, like, like Nobody maybe you would look back it. at your first breakup, you know? Um, and it just really, it just read me. It was, it was profound. Um, I guess what you mentioned, the, the, the process of Midrash, and one of the things that I loved about the, the book is you, you, you injected these um, thoughts from Midrash. You, you injected these little ideas from different rabbis that they've had as they go oh, well, through you the know, story. They're all that. imaginary rabbis. Oh, they I are. I made them all up. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. I didn't yeah. pick up on that at all. I was just like, oh, interesting. But well, one of them was so fascinating. And it's right after this chapter, um, obviously, Joseph is um, very uh, fortunately, his brothers kind of go, oh, maybe we won't kill him, you know, like, and they, they send him off to um, Egypt with, with slavers. And, and there's this thought that I'm, and I'm reading this, this um, thought that, that your imaginary rabbi has had. And I'm going, that's a bloody good thought. Why did I never think that? And this idea that <laughs> Joseph is the the favorite son of one of the most powerful people in the region, very wealthy, very, you know, 
well to do would probably do pretty much anything if someone showed up and said hey your son said to drop him off and we'd get a free you know set of camels or you know a bunch of money or whatever you could get he'd probably be like yes and also i'm gonna go whoop my my other sons now but there's this 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 component of joseph um he he has this thing of going well yeah i could tell these slave traders hey you'll get a finder's fear or whatever but the there is an acceptance in his fate you mentioned it in the pit this concept of i just wrote it down because i couldn't remember but like um this this idea of like this it almost could seem almost fatalistic of like well it will be what it will be god is doing what it will do um can, can you talk to that a little bit because i guess on yeah. some level i hear that on a surface level and the first thing i think from my um very um scared ego child <laughs> whatever it is i go oh i don't like that you know i don't want to like not you know, have a control of my life or change things or, and obviously Joseph does do those things as well at the same time. And so there's, there's some component of that, of what I fear I hear. Um, maybe some of that I need to face. Um, and maybe some of it, I'm just hearing the wrong thing from my story, from my narrative, from my world framework, but can you talk to yeah, that kind of yeah. concept? Yes. Um, to me, fatalism seems like a, there's a distance between you and reality. And it seems like uh, a, not a happy um, state of mind. It's, uh, it's accepting what is. It's not loving what is. Mm. There's a really big difference between wow. accepting what is. Accepting what is is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a huge uh, step forward from arguing with what is but it's still not loving what is. And to my mind, loving what is, as Katie talks about it, is what what trust in God means. Mm. Trust in God means, to me, always knowing in in your flesh, in your bones, that whatever is happening is the best thing that could possibly be ha- happening. And if, and if you don't see that, it's only because there's a thought interposing itself between you and reality. Mm-hmm. So, so fatalism is kind of like gritting your teeth and, and holding on and uh, an idea that this is, uh, this is uh, what should be happening as opposed to loving God, loving what is, and trusting, knowing that um, it's always, reality is always the most beautiful thing given to you as a gift by an intelligence that is incomparably vaster than your own small intelligence. It's, it's a, um, it's, it's really a a night and day difference in, in, affect and emotional resonance i hope you i hope that makes it a little clearer um Ah. yeah well i guess i felt both of those i felt fatalistic and i've also loved what is right so there's been seasons where i'm going oh i'm accepting what is and 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 like you said i i'm no longer a crazy person fighting with reality and suffering the consequences of that but yeah. I might be quite a depressed person still. <laughs> yeah. you know, I might be quite bummed out by that. But I've also had the moments where I go, gosh, this is amazing. A practice that really helped me is um, 
Pete Holmes. I think you were on Pete Holmes. I don't know if it's come yeah, out yet, but he's mentioned it and I'm excited about listening to it. Um, but I love Pete so much. I mean, he's one of my favorite people, but he, he um, frames it in a beautiful way where he talks about seeing life almost like your, your, your day is a TV show and just see your life is a TV show, but like a day is like an episode and you look at an episode and you go, if, if, if everything went the way you wanted it to go and your, your kind of boring schedule played out and everything, it'd be a pretty crappy episode, right? No one want to watch that, right? You want to see what happens when, oh my gosh, his wife just got cancer. Now I'm not wishing my wife gets cancer. I'm not wishing anyone's wife gets cancer, but tell you what, it's a good episode. How's Phil going to cope with that? How's, what's going to happen next? How are they going to grow? How are they going to change? How are they going to, whatever it is, you know, I think there's something quite beautiful to, um, and, and that sort of, concept that sort of practice being able to go ha oh, this is a good episode moment rather than a oh well it is what it is it really allowed me to kind of go yes i can love this moment i can go this is exciting this has potential this is this is quite a beautiful moment in and of itself this is affecting me in a unique way that no other way no other thing could happen what if this is even just changing the narrative and i know that this is maybe one step from the ultimate goal, but changing narrative from, oh, this is the worst thing that ever happened to, what if this is the best thing that ever happened? I don't know. You yeah, know? Um, that's, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really helpful. I guess, can I ask you, so something that's really interesting to me, and I know that you're probably working with my audience, maybe working with me a bit. I, I don't tend to need um, a framework uh, of, of gods to kind of, um, you know, fill the world or whatever. But um, a lot of the audience are coming out of something where that is a very important concept to them. And, um, and yet they have got a lot of baggage with that. It's an old white guy with a beard and, you know, he's X, Y, and Z and so many things that are tied to their Christian backgrounds or whatever it is they're coming from. Um, and, and you talked about God being reality in the beginning of the book, the Joseph book, you talk about how God isn't even mentioned in this story, maybe a couple of times, kind of. Um, and you talk about how anytime God becomes a character, he ceases to be God in a sense. And and I guess because you're mentioning God, because you're mentioning like God's will and, the, and accepting God's will and things like that. But I know that you're coming from a very different place of what you maybe mean when you say God a lot of people are looking for new ways to approach God, very excited about possibilities. Could you kind of um, maybe go into that a bit and explain how sure. you understand the divine? Um, sure. What, like you yes. talk about this intelligence um, or, yeah. You know, um, for, for people who've been brought up in, in Christianity um, and in Judaism for that matter, mm. um, it's really interesting to take a look at the Hebrew word for that's usually translated as the Lord. It's it, it, it in the Hebrew, it really means um, that which is, or uh, it, it's not gendered. So uh, you can say he quote unquote, who is, or, um, or being, or um, what is. So loving God is equivalent to loving what is. If you substitute for people who are uh, unclear about God and um, want something that will be more useful to negotiate, I think substituting the word reality every time the word God appears can be very helpful. Um, the other thing is that uh, whenever you this is something that can be helpful for people to realize too. Whenever you have a concept 
about God or an image of God, in Jewish terms, it's an idol. Mm. So you're, you're breaking the first command, commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And other gods are usually uh, the, the destructive ones are concepts. So that even a benign seeming concept like, um, like God is all powerful or God is um, all loving can be an idol. Mm. Um, I remember a, um, after one of the uh, horrible shootings of school kids uh, five or six years ago, um, Katie was listening to the TV and the Catholic priest came on who was devastated um, because even with all his theological education, he was struggling with the, the usual thought, how could a, a good God have let this happen? And um, the concept that, you know, that was causing so much misery in this um, poor man's mind was uh, that God is um, all powerful and God is good. And there, there can be no reconciliation between those two concepts. So if you learn how to um, move aside from any concept, even the most beautiful concept, or even the most beautiful image of God, uh, or or uh, Jesus as the Son of God, or as the as the incarnation of everything that's most beautiful about humanity. All of that. If you step aside from that and learn how to move into the pure nothingness of the divinity, that can be a great help. Realizing that any any idea, any thought that you have about God, is uh, a uh, breaking of the first commandment because um, the real God can't be thought. Uh, he can only be loved. And the, in the words of there's, do you, you know, you must know the um, wonderful Christian meditation manual, the cloud of unknowing. It's, I've it's heard, a heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an English um, book that was written, I think in the 14th century uh, by an, an anonymous English, probably priest, and it's a fabulously uh, beautiful and, and helpful spiritual practice where he teaches you to put a cloud in between everything that you think or think you know about God and God himself, quote unquote, him, mm. self, and learn to, to, um, to move beyond anything that you can think about God. So um, there's an even more uh, useful practice, I think, comes out of Katie's world to, um, instead of God, you just substitute reality. And reality is something that we all know uh, mm. and, and can, can deal with. And we know when we're arguing with it because it results in, uh, in stress and in clenched teeth and in, in depression and uh, misery of a, of a hundred thousand varieties. So um, the, it's very easy to, to understand the rule that applies here. Anytime you're not filled with joy, anytime you're not filled with um, 
love, it has to be because you're arguing with reality. Mm. And it's very easy to, um, to heal yourself of this by identifying the thought that's getting between you and God or reality yes. and questioning it and moving through it. So mm. that's what I would recommend. Yeah, I, I guess something that fascinates me. So you mentioned in passing that you kind of um, there's some form of divine intelligence to it. There's something, whatever that means. I, I guess what 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 do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. When you when you are able to reach the kind of realization where th- the thoughts that are causing you stress, let go of you, what you're left with is a world of beauty and a world where you see that, uh, where you see the intelligence of everything that's happening to you, even if it's Mm. conventionally bad. Yeah. Uh, You know, Katie uh, almost dying in the hospital, which happened to me three or four years ago. Um, You come to the same kind of experience that a great scientist like Einstein talked about, uh, where he uh, he mentioned that the scientist's experience of doing science, of coming to the the kind of creative revelations of of the theories that he discovered, is is an experience of awe Mm. about the meticulous harmony of all the trillions of parts of the physical universe that can move with such um, with such universal beauty and they're indicative of uh, an intelligence that's Incompa- as I said, incomparably vaster than even an Einstein's brain. That's what he. That's the way he talked mm. about his own experience of of religious awe. And um, when you can see that happening in your own life, you don't have to see it, you know, universally. Actually, it's even more important to see it in your own life. When you can see that everything that's ever happened to you has produced the experiences that have allowed you to get to the, your present situation, even if it's not uh, the happiest situation, but especially if it is the happiest situation, you can, you can bless every point in your life. The way Joseph comes at the end of the book to uh, understanding that the, the, the experience of um, being cast into the pit or the experience of being accused of rape as he is later on in, in Egypt have all led him to the, um, the overwhelming um, fulfillment that, that he comes to in his uh, maturity. Um, that, that is uh, intelligence. That is seeing the intelligence resonating through your own life. And at that point, there's no way that you can have an enemy. There's no way that you can have anybody to forgive in your past, in your present. There's no way that you can actually have an experience of arguing with the reality. It's, it's all good. Um, Katie sometimes says that um, when, you, when you see 
the world, when you see everything as God and everything as good, the way God in the, in the, in the book of Genesis uh, on the sixth day of creation contemplates everything that he's created, everything in the world down to the, the, the smallest amoeba and, and sees it as good. You can enter that six day experience and be in the position of the Genesis God and see everything in your life as good and as, as leading to your own fulfillment, um, then it's, it's no longer necessary to inquire into your own thoughts. It's, you're, you're there, you're in a state of um, realization. It's beautiful. I mean, really, I know I've said everything's beautiful, but it really is. It's, it's a beautiful way to yeah. see, um, and, uh, yeah, to experience. Um, and so, yeah, that's profound and it's, it's, it's really is beautiful. I appreciate you um, taking yeah. the time to expand those concepts and, and, and those ideas. And I, I have to say, honestly, I really loved your book. I, I, um, I think I read, I'm trying to think what I've read of yours because I've read quite a few like um, translations, translations of different um, things. I think it was your Epic of Gilgamesh and I've read your Tao Te Ching and, and I just absolutely love your work. Um, what Thank is you. it? So we should probably wrap no, up because I you, wanna, you're, 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 uh, you were talking about Christians and for mm. open-minded Christians um, or Christians who are struggling um, with some of what Jesus said, um, they might be interested in, in the book that I'm, I That's don't know. Right. The Gospel of Jesus, right? The, go- the Gospel yes. According to Jesus, which is my own, um, my own uh, experience of what is uh, genuine in the uh, traditional Gospels. And it's a portrait right. of, um, a, of a, a being that I love very deeply yeah. and um it may be helpful to some people who are struggling. that sounds amazing i'll definitely include that if people are listening or if they're watching there'll be links below and stuff what how did you go about that is, is that something of you did study into the historicity of the historical jesus and framing that or is it much more informed by um how do i look at jesus through a lens of my personal kind of zen backgrounds and and frame both. it that way like both okay both you know i hmm. i um I fell in love with Jesus as a, a little nine-year-old Jewish kid in a Christian school, listening to our headmaster read from the Gospels every Tuesday. And um, so, so that was an experience that was very powerful for me, but also very confusing because there were things that I didn't understand and things that I came to really dislike as well as, 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 as loving some of what I was hearing. And so when I, uh, when I, after I published my Tao Te Ching, the next step seemed to me to, uh, to uh, what was given to me was to um, go into a couple, a couple of years study of the gospels with the desire to separate what I considered to be the verses and the stories that genuinely came from the historical Jesus from the layers that were added by the early church and mm. the compilation of the gospels over the next uh, 40 years after he died. So it's both using scholarly criteria um, and also using uh, the insights that I had from my own Zen practice and my 
um, knowledge of Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism and Judaism mm. because I could put my finger on parallel passages that would illuminate what Jesus said and make them more transparent and more available for uh, people who wanted to understand them. So both yeah. of those uh, were necessary. That's beautiful. I mean, this is, I mean, the thing I hear again and again as people come out of these kind of um, more institutional concepts of, of religion is I love the person of Jesus. I love the teaching of Jesus. Um, they may even feel they have a relationship with the, the person of Jesus. That's how they conceptualize the divine. Um, but I, I just can't, I don't know how to bring him with me as I leave so much of that baggage. And so that sounds amazing. Have you read um, Christopher Moore's Lamb? Have you ever come across that? It's no. it's a wonderfully funny book. Um, it's, he's a he's a great um, writer. He's a novelist, and he writes a book about Jesus Christ growing up according to his best friend Biff. Um, <laughs> and basically, but what's interesting is it covers basically his early years, and Biff becomes his best friend, and then he feels that God's calling him to do something. He doesn't know what to do, so they go exploring and go traveling, and they meet with all these different people on their travels, and they meet with you know Hindus and Buddhists and things like. That. And then as they come back, it, it shows how jesus is going on this on this journey of he's trying to con get his judaism but connect it to this this father that he's connecting to going to something more beautiful more um embodied more whatever it might be um and and he learns some things from these different practices and somebody's going eh, not so big a fan of that but i love this and and but what it really it opened me up when i read it maybe about 10 years ago now i, I first read it and i was like wow, there is so much similarity in this. You know, there really is. And, and you could imagine, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if Jesus traveled over to <laughs> China or India or any of these places, who knows? Um, I, I know some people say that that might be the case, but I think it's more likely he was just in a trade route, like somewhere else of Horus, mm. probably had quite a few people coming through it. Um, uh, but you could see these amazing and beautiful overlaps. That, that I mean, it's so impossible to say that we're not all different fingers pointing at the same moon, you know, like there, there's something in all of that. And so that's one of the things I loved about, uh, you know, your book, the, the, the way of forgiveness with, with Joseph. I mean, just beautifully interwoven. Suddenly I'm like, Whoa, I just read a passage from the Tao. Huh? Oh, Oh gosh, that's from the Buddha. Or, you know, and I'm just like, I love that. I just love it because of course Thank that's you. applicable. Of course that's uh, a, a way that we should be opening ourselves up because every finger that points at the moon from a different angle has something fresh and beautiful to say. It's the same moon. You know, we don't need to get fighting over whose moon. Um, I know we like to do that at times, but um, well, yeah, thank you, it's just no, so beautiful. So, so beautiful. And I really appreciate I, it. You're probably my ideal reader. So oh, I'm, thank I'm, you. I'm very happy to hear you react that way. No, wonderful. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go straight at, now before I go to bed, because uh, it's probably coming up for two now. Before I go to bed, I'm going to get an Amazon order in for your uh, um, the gospel according to Jesus as well, um, because I'm just like, I'm, I'm excited by the idea. Um, but no, thank you for what you're doing, because I think it's really important work. Uh, it really is. Um, and so you're very welcome. If people want to connect with you, follow you, are you on social media? Is is your books, your website? What, what's the best way to kind of track with Stephen, well, there, there is forward. no, because I'm, I'm so ancient that, um, that I, social media is not something I do. I just write You're living books. my dream. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I can tell you uh, that they can connect with Byron Katie 
Um, okay, yeah. she's on she's on social media, and that that's even better than connecting okay. with me. So, um, and then if I can mention again, loving what is, uh, people who want inquiry as a spiritual practice, that's the textbook, loving what is. Cool. I will yeah. definitely Kate, include some links on Kate, that. Katie's uh, website is um, is thework.com and uh, that will show people exactly how to do inquiry and will take people to her daily webcast too, which is wonderful and, and extremely I wasn't helpful. aware she was doing those. Has she been doing those for yeah, a long from, time? No, ever since uh, COVID-19. COVID and, and I've seen... Uh, hundreds and thousands of emails from people who saying what a blessing COVID-19 yeah. is in the, in this aspect that it's bringing us Katie every day for an hour. Mm. Wow. I've been missing out. I need to, I need to get on it. I think my wife would quite like that as well. What's nine. Do you say 9 a.m.? 9, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Wonderful. 5 p.m. When I finish work, I'll uh... <laughs> jump on. Well, my regards oh, you to so your much. wife. I mm. hope she, oh, uh, yeah. I hope she gets a lot out of it. Yeah, no, she she honestly would want to give you and, and Katie the biggest hug and, and thank you. Honestly, it's oh, been such a, a liberation for on. us both. And so thank you. Yeah, please will, pass on my love to Katie. I will so, pass it on. She's been such a blessing to us and, and will continue to be, I'm sure. But so have and, you as well. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Of course, of course. I was, it was a pleasure. Wonderful. Well, I hope you do well. I hope you enjoy all that is ahead of you. What, are you working on a new project? We can oh, be keeping I have, an eye out for um, I have three finished projects. The next one uh, wow. is coming out with St. Martin's is a book called The First Christmas. It's a, my, my midrash, my imaginative expansion of the nativity story. Wow. So uh, that's the next one out. Oh, wonderful. Well, maybe we, that, maybe that's another conversation to be had in the future. <laughs> I look forward to it. Wonderful. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time. I know it's not uh, normal for podcasts to run a couple of hours. And so I always appreciate people that are willing to take a couple of hours to really dive in and, and kind of explore these in a bit more depth. And oh, I, my I really pleasure. It's been very, very helpful. So We covered a lot of ground. We did. I really appreciate it. You did a wonderful job. And again, thank you so much for all that you're doing. It is making a great difference. I have no doubt. You're, you're very welcome. All right. Love you, my friend. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Right. Bye. That, everyone, was Stephen Mitchell. I absolutely loved talking with Stephen. What a profoundly wise, wise man. Um, uh, such a joy and such an honor to connect with him and to pick his brains on, on all these different topics. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I would encourage you, go check out some of his work. Um, his, his latest book, obviously, Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness, is, is a beautiful story and, and, and full of rich, rich truth to, uh, to pull on. Um, and, and actually, if you are in a season maybe where you have come out of Christianity, you do not um, appreciate um, scripture in the same way that you used to, or maybe it's even quite triggering to you, um, I really encourage you to check, check out the, the, the book, um, Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness, because coming from a practitioner of Zen Buddhism, um, there is a totally different spin, a totally different exploration of it. Um, it's not a stuffy theological book. It's a story, uh, you know, from beginning to end, it really is him just telling a story about a guy called Joseph. Um, and, and it's a really beautiful way to explore um, some of these ancient texts and, and see that they still have great wisdom to teach us if we, if we look um, for them. Uh, do check out Stephen's other work. Um, he mentioned The Gospel According to Jesus. It's a fantastic book. I've since read that and, um, and I really, really enjoyed it. 
um, and he's got a lot of other books. You can check out his website at um, stephenmitchellbooks.com and there are, I think, 45 books I counted on there that he's been um, involved in writing. Um, and so he's there's no shortage of uh, opportunity for you to explore some of his writing and, and there should be something for everyone. He's even got a whole section on children's books as well. So if you have kids or teenagers and you are looking to expose them to spiritual thought, spiritual um, uh, exploration without maybe some of the baggage of our backgrounds um, within kind of more um, fundamental perspectives of Christianity and things like that, um, some of them might be really great. I, I have to confess, I obviously haven't read them, um, but uh, I, I would encourage you maybe check them out and see what you think. Let you let me know if you do and, and if they are good. I'd, I'd love to know that. Um, also, his his wife Byron Katie, absolutely extraordinary woman. Um, as I said in the podcast, to Stephen has been really helpful for both me and my wife Tilly uh, in our journeys of just doing some inner work and healing from different wounds, um, realizing that uh, we're responding out of um, pain hurt, fear, different things like that, and, and just doing the work in processing that and, and learning to live in a much more health, excuse me, <clears throat> healthy way. Um, I do encourage you to check out Byron Katie. Um, thework.com is how you can check her out. I've put links in the show notes to her Instagram and her Facebook as well. Um, unfortunately, Stephen isn't on social media, so there's, there's no option there. But um, yeah, connecting uh, with his wife is not a bad idea. All right, that's enough for me. Um, as I said at the top of the, the show, if you want to support what I'm doing, phildrysdale.com slash partner or patreon.com slash phildrysdale. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to a private discussion group. Um, there's um, uh, monthly Zoom calls. There's other perks and things like that as well. Um, for people that want to give more than $5 a month, um, this is how I live my life. I, I do this full time and I live solely off donations. I don't want to ask people for money uh, in re response to resources. Um, and so I leave that up to people if they wish to give. Um, but letting you guys know that that is an option um, if you so desire. Um, the deconstructionnetwork.com is a free resource for people to find people that are going through faith deconstruction in their local area. So if you feel lonely, if you feel a bit isolated, if you feel disconnected from your community, family, friends, um, since going through radical shifts of faith, the deconstructionnetwork.com is a free resource for you to find people that are going through similar things in the local area. Um, all right, that's enough from me. I'll see you in the next podcast. Love you all.